question we asked tonight, what have we learned from that as a country? Are we any wiser as to uh, what actually happened in July? Because I, I certainly know that I'm still trying to make sense of it. Um, and more importantly, I guess, have people been brought to account? We saw earlier on today uh, the, a warrant issued uh, for one of the gentlemen out in Guazul Natal, 31-year-old Bungengosi uh, Kanile, who was quite active during that moment in Guazul Natal. And uh, it's been said that he's down with the flu, and that's why he could not appear before the courts today. So we try and make sense of that tonight. Under our headlines, and uh, Ibrahim Fakir, political analyst, joins me this evening to make uh, sense of that. Ibrahim, good evening to you and welcome. Hi, good evening. Nice to chat to you again. Always, always a pleasure, Ibrahim. I want us maybe just to talk briefly about um, sort of what you thought, if you can recall, I guess, and just reflect on sort of what you thought when this started. Uh, Because, you know, when we think about it now in hindsight, it's just, I guess, one big period. But I certainly recall when it started thinking, you know, it was just going to be a few hours, it was going to be something that was contained. But effectively, it became a lot bigger than that. It did. Um, And I mean, I think it also started a little before uh, the national attention focused on it. So actually, for a good few days, if not weeks before, remember, there were targeted attacks at truck drivers. In some cases, it was on the pretext that we're trying to deal with foreign truck drivers who are taking South African jobs and so on. So that kind of crude economic nationalism at the very base level. Now, I mean, we can have debates about the appropriateness of that kind of politics and political messaging and so on, but, I mean, if we're tracing the genesis of what happened, the early signs were were that. And for a moment, I thought, gosh, this is just, you know, part of the continuum, uh, which is another mm-hmm. thing we often forget. There's this continuum of kind of violent protest. Uh, sometimes I'd even call it criminality and political thuggery, which are not new to uh, our phenomena in South Africa's mm-hmm. politics and in our political firmament. Right? So it's almost like an ongoing thing. You don't like something, um, and you go out and you can burn it even. So, so, so I thought... Look, it may be part of this continuity. And then I think things got clearer that there is actually a political hand. And then it got a little muddled because people were attributing all kinds of causal theories for why this was happening. And then we can accept that that is the case. I mean, the inequality in our society is unsustainable. The circulation of elites um, in the manner that it is is unsustainable. Mm. The kind of lack of redistributive government policy uh, is part of the problem. So we can, we, can, we can say all those causal factors mattered and they lit the powder cake that was there. People were easily abused. I mean, the very people who were at the brunt of what we would call now state capture or malevolent state capture, as I call it, were the very ones who were used to continue to fight this battle. But it's clear that there was political orchestration. So you know, I thought, gosh, here's these three trends. But when I thought about it deeply, I thought, you know, the thing that we don't want to talk about enough is that I think all of the people or the political orchestrators needed to do this because they needed a bargaining chip and wanted a political upper hand to mm. negotiate with the establishment inside the ANC. They knew, however, that the establishment inside the ANC, insofar as they are in charge of the state, they can't meddle because of our constitutional architecture and so on. They can't meddle 
in the process of prosecutions, in the process of government, uh, and so on. So what they wanted, in my view, is that they wanted an informal mode of governance to continue. The informal mode of governance that happened under President Zuma, where those people who have formal authority to make certain types of decisions and allocate certain types of resources do so by using the formal power, the formal authority that they have. But the informal influence is and the pressure is coming from outside. And they wanted this to be that kind of thing, I think. They wanted the informal modes of governance to continue so that the formal modes of governance don't kick in and that there isn't enough prosecutions, speedy prosecution, and so on. And then, you know, if you want to muddy the terrain, you let it seem as if it's just part of the generalized criminality that, mm. that's part of the fabric mm. of our society. It's very sinister. I find, I find that perspective very interesting, uh, Ibrahim, because in a way it contextualizes what we saw that might have seemed very sporadic, very chaotic, very unorganized within the broader, you know, fratricide of different groupings inside of the governing African National Congress. Um, and, in a, and in a sense, we can't avoid that because, you know, this happens contemporaneously with the incarceration of former President Jacob Zuma. It happens and continues a long-standing trend if we think about the closures of the N3, for instance, if we think about you know, the, the stripping of public infrastructure. Um, it, in a way, extended what had been a long-standing you know, and even, I guess, more immediate concern insofar as you know, the incarceration of President Jacob Zuma is concerned, which makes me ask the next question, which is, you know, how then do you preempt something like this, which is a combination of the long-standing and also the more immediate? Sure. Uh, <laughs> if you and I knew the answer to that question, yeah, I, doubt we'd, means, I, mean, I doubt we'd be where we are now. Yeah, it means uh, you can have a match that is something else tomorrow. <laughs> you know, you might have an immediate trigger that might sure. you know, trigger a lot more. I mean, we hear even now of like 6,000... Uh, yeah. What was it? Three thousand kilometers of rail that's been stripped or whatever. So yeah. that maybe might be the longer form of, I guess, you know, uh, sure. signal of that. Yeah. No, I, I mean, if you really think about this, you do need you need one set of interventions which are policy related, right? And the most immediate and obvious policy one is you can't allow the export of this kind of scrap, which then must provide a complete disincentive for the people who do this and and then lower down their chain. Uh, they don't need the people on the ground to actually do this because they're not mm. going to be able to export this at some point. So maybe that's one kind of intervention. But more fundamentally, structurally, you're asking a question about the back-to-basics approach that we require across all our public institutions and all our public authorities. And here, basically, you're thinking about well, let's separate them. First, if you think about the police and you think about um, um, the security services in general and you think about crime intelligence and defense intelligence, uh. then they must do the basic job that they are paid to do. We, we're not in the long term, in the immediate term rather, we're not going to fix what are long-term systemic problems around structural unemployment. Uh, around massive inequality and all of that. Of course, we need to unravel those. And those require systematic policy interventions, redistributory efforts, and so on. But that's a longer-term question. In the immediate term, the 
back-to-basics approach has to apply to all of those institutions and crime intelligence, defense Um, intelligence, and so on. But they, we know, are not doing their work because they're factionalized, right? They serve other purposes. Ibrahim, let's do this. I want us to pause for a second. We've got a quick spot break we need to take. But when we come back, I want you to come back to that factionalization of state institutions. Eight minutes it is before 8 p.m. You tuned into the headlines here on Metro FM Talk. Joined on the line uh, to reflect on five months since the July riots uh, with uh, Ibrahim Fakir, who's a political analyst. And uh, Ibrahim uh, disrupted you somewhat there towards the end. But I want us to come back to the point that you were making, which is, you know, in a sense, what has made difficult to mount an effective state response to this issue has had a lot to do with the the factionalization of particular institutions. So let's talk about that. Absolutely. So the security services, um, crime intelligence, defense intelligence, and Mm -hmm. the basic operational stuff that you expect on the ground from the police and others simply didn't kick in. Uh, And in fact, if you listen to the Human Rights Commission hearings, I mean, it was scary to hear one commissioner at the provincial level say something Mm -hmm. about a minister in another portfolio, and then you have the minister of police saying pretty nasty things between the, if you read between the lines of his old national police commissioner, uh, and saying things like, oh, "I had to work with the deputy national police commissioner because the national police commissioner wasn't around." Well, does it matter to us who you had to work with? Just mm. get the damn job done, okay? So you've got that that kind of thing emerging. But there's a third area that we don't look at, and we can talk about the factionalization of state institutions, which we've known for a very long time, and it's not just in the security and intelligence services, but it's across the board. If you think about municipalities, where your first point of reducing the pressure of inequality comes from through indigence grants to a whole range of other things. Mm. They simply are not doing it properly, right? And now you've got unstable governments in many of the metros, and I think they're going to remain unstable. What hope of there is there of their fulfilling this kind of mandate? But but let's let's put aside our institutions for a moment, and let's focus on civil society. Let's be honest and ask ourselves questions as South Africans. Mm. Those of us in the relative elite, we can sit back and we can think about these things from our ivory, ivory tower. Those people on the ground don't. They're faced with this in an immediate sense. Sure. So they just they have to ask themselves two questions: a are we going to become amenable fodder for people higher up to abuse us and use us the way in which they have continued to do, even though when they are in power and influence, they continue to ignore us? So that's the first question we as South Africans have to ask. 
are we going to continue to be used as fodder by these political elites and predatory political elites at that, number one. Mm. Number two, are we going to be easily and cheaply bought by these guys to pursue what is in their own narrow interests rather than what is in our interest? Now, we know some of the guys on the ground are going to say, look, we had to do this because for us it was a matter of survival. The heartbreaking images and interviews with a kid, you know, who stole, who took stuff from Mr. Price. You can understand why that lady does it. Oh. But you don't understand why people in his family, in his elders do it. Now, even though the pressure, the economic pressure is felt so keenly, that second question still applies. Do we and are we going to allow ourselves to be used by these guys to fulfill an agenda which is nefarious, which is theirs, which has nothing to do with us, actually. So forget the factionalization of institutions. If we don't allow ourselves to be used by these people, these things won't happen. Hmm. Yeah. And, and I guess, you know, there's, there's another dynamic to it, uh, uh, Ibrahim, which I think for me is much more ominous and scary. That all of the institutions that effectively influence whether or not we're able to get bread on the table or, you know, the water comes out of the pipes. Um, and I'm not only talking about the direct ones or the rail infrastructure, the road infrastructure and all of that, but all of the people that are supposed to preempt any threat in that regard. If all of they, I guess all of them have their daggers out for each other, uh, what implications does that have if we had an external threat? I mean, this was for all intents and purposes, you know, outpouring and playing mm -hmm. out of what I called earlier this fratricide inside of the ANC. But God forbid right. if you had something worse, you know, um, and I think uh, it's, it's, it's not far-fetched for us to think about external threats when we think about, you know, Mozambique being on our doorstep and what's effectively happening there. It, it just, it holds all of the ominous signs, as I said. We do, and we're lucky that, you know, others don't yet have their sights on us, but there are other threats. I mean, we got We've got human security threats, uh, and not, not in the sense that we you know, face imminent invasion and so on. But you're right. If we face those questions, then we really face, as a society, a genuine existential crisis. Mm. But on the human security front, we already face that, ex uh, that existential crisis. Now, we'll look at the influx of people who come across our borders uh, from the north of our country. And I'm not saying this as a, as a narrow-minded South African. I'm saying this because the people who meant to police and regularize entry and exit are simply not doing what they're supposed to do. That, that's a reality we have to face, whether we like it or not. And, it, mm -hmm. and, and, and political correctness aside, um, we've, we, we, have, we, can't, we as a society cannot sustain that mode of behavior where it literally has become free-for-all. But forget that human existential security threat that we face. If you talk about just from an internal sense, what this actually means is that, yeah, it's spectacular when you look at it. But when you come down to brass tacks, hard numbers, you're talking about the loss of about 50,000, 60,000 jobs. If the economic calculations of people like you are correct, that each person is sustaining four or five people, you multiply 50 or 60,000 jobs which, 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 which are lost during that interactionary period and think of the brass tax effect that have. You're talking quarter million people immediately. Mm. Forgetting the multiplier effect that is going to happen yeah, yeah. downstream uh, for people who are reliant on remittances. Uh, and even on, if you want think you can have an economy driven by consumption, you have 60,000 people who are, who are consuming less. 
and and that's forgetting production and other and, and the other side of the economic equation, right? Mm. And then where are you sitting as a society? So I think our people are not thinking carefully about what this means when they are freely prepared to give up their own agency and be you know be prepared to manipulate it by who they think are political higher ups. But you see, I guess you know it comes back to the point you're making, uh, Ibrahim, that um, some of it is so immediate. Uh, that you know the prospect of um, getting something that at least can stave off the pangs of hunger, uh, even if you're part of a broader machination. I mean, it's so surprising when you see many of the people who are defending the malls uh, during July now part of, I guess, another more sort of narrow anti-immigrant mobilization, but also mobilization against uh, the national electricity utility to just show, I guess, how you know, some of these interests often play with um, uh, uh, the fickle and even enduring hunger of many of our communities, that, you know, sometimes people are just, you know, riled up and made uh, to be protesters for hire in many cases. And uh, I guess that's what was quite unfortunate. But I think that's what in many ways distinguished July, that in a sense, you know, even the person who ran with sunflower oil felt like they had something that they would have taken from that particular protest. No, absolutely. And that, I think we all have a degree of sympathy for. We can understand mm. how that happens. I mean, if you want to talk solutions, which is where we should actually go. Sure. And part of this is that I think we, you know, and I don't want to say that government has no role to play, but I think part of the location of the solution is among civil society. And when I talk about civil society, I'm not talking about you and I talking in the media mm. or in NGOs, etc. I'm talking about business included here. And they need to come to the party. So if in the immediate term, we're not going to solve the governmental problems. Let's just be frank. But let me put it out there that we need, perhaps at the private sector level, at least at senior management and executive level, to stop the kind of massive share options, bonus schemes, mm. and so on. And those guys need to say, I don't need a 30 million rand bonus. I will take a 10 million rand bonus. And by the same token, one is not being a, a mad socialist and saying, no, you can't have any of these things. No, by all means, have it. Let's moderate it. and Let's use some of that to cross-subsidize entry-level jobs, even though in the immediate term, you may not find a return. But sustainable business for me means that in the medium term, you will start to see a trickling of a return coming in. And that's what we need to be looking at, sustainability of the society, while we fix the politics, while we fix the institutions, and so mm. on. Let's take, let's do the immediate things that can be done, cross-subsidize entry-level jobs, let people have work, let there be money in people's pockets, and then you could stimulate economic demand, you might stimulate supply, people might re-emerge into manufacturing production and so on. Uh, and perhaps that's the virtuous way out of this. Because in, in the immediate term, we're not going to solve the institutional problems. That's It's just it's pie in the sky. We're also not going to yeah. fix our abnormal politics in the immediate term. It's also pie in the sky. What's left? It's those mm. guys who believe that they need to do business in the society, cut back a little, put something back, put money in people's pockets, and maybe that's the, the way out of it. Yeah, and I guess, uh, I mean, I would also think that there surely should be some production response as well because, yeah, we might be talking, uh, you know, a basic income grant, but it's also about making sure you're producing in places where you haven't been producing. I mean, it's, it's crazy how reliant we were on the N3 corridor, what used to be called the Natal corridor, for all yeah. of our food needs. And even, you know, anything from how medication lands on our shores has to go through Durban. So I guess it was also an opportunity to... Um, 
diversify where a lot of our economic and social vulnerability is as well. Absolutely. You can't have the kind of concentration we have and the kind of you know society which is driven by pure metropolitan focus without uh, a real focus on expanding and diversifying the other hubs mm. uh, that 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 will that will impact and impact on the on the um, economic in the economic system. Number one, number two, you know, production also. I mean, you can't only really be producing the things where you think you have big competitive and comparative advantage, and you make hyper profits because that's where your costs are least. I mean, somehow we have to strike a balance between doing these kind of things. And the competition authorities have to get better at kind of breaking some of the bigger monopolies. They say they're doing so, but we don't see much evidence of that. Uh, at the level of civil society, of course, you also need greater, you know, greater... I mean, people work hard in the society. Sure, they do. But there are too few of us who do. Uh, and those of us who do work are overburdened with too much. And perhaps we need to spread some of those opportunities also. You know, not one person does eight different things at the same time. Ibrahim Fakil, thank you very much for your time. It's always a pleasure. And and maybe just before I let you go, Ibrahim, I mean, if there's any one overriding reflection for you, because I guess the stakes of what we saw in July weren't only just around the incarceration of President Jacob Zuma, uh, because in many ways the informal governance network you were talking about earlier um, is also trading at sites, I guess, on you know electoral congress in the governing party next year. There's the 2024 elections coming up as well. So there's a lot of critical sort of political economy milestones that are coming up as well. Um, how do you see, I guess, you know, going forward, this moment of July fitting into all of those unfolding events? Yeah, rocky road, because, you know, July didn't end in July. If you, if you read the subtext of what some of the July, July um, manipulators are saying, is that they were part of keeping people away from voting for this particular ANC, they say, never for this ANC, maybe another kind of ANC. So it, it hasn't ended. It is still ever-present. It will play itself out and insert itself. It turns itself into the local government election. It will insert itself into the upcoming ANC conference. It will also insert itself if they don't sort of get their way into the 2024 national election. So that's where we are. I mean, that's what I'm saying. The implications of, 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 of the July interaction is not just the economic costs, not just the human costs, not just the, the frailties of our society in terms of its social compact and in terms of social relations, but it is permeating and starting to permeate every sinew of our public life, including what happens in the governing party and beyond that into society yeah. generally. Ibrahim, always a pleasure catching up with you and uh, thank you very much for your time. Chat to you soon. Cheers, everyone. Awesome stuff. Ibrahim Fakir, political analyst.